We're in a series called Road to Redemption. This is part four, and we've been in John 17, John 18, and the beginning of John 19. And this morning, we're looking at John 19, 17 through 42. So I wanted to ask you to turn in your Bibles. If you're using the Bridge Bible, it's on page 753. Um, do we have any Bibles left out there? Who needs a Bible? Just slip up your hand if anybody would like a... Okay. Got, we need a few. All right. Just slip up your hands. The guy's got some. And wait until the Bible comes. Okay. On his last night, Jesus spent the evening with his disciples in the upper room in the city of Jerusalem. They ate their last supper together. Jesus washed their feet. He predicted that Judas would betray him and that Peter would deny him. He told his disciples what was to come and how they were to live. He prayed. He was arrested. He was deserted by his disciples. He was treated roughly through the night. He was taken first to the house of Annas, the former high priest, and he was taken there for a hearing. What charges could they bring against Jesus? Because they didn't have a charge, he was taken before Caiaphas, the high priest. And after that, uh, an emergency meeting was called of the Jewish ruling council, called the Sanhedrin. They thought they had charges. They made three charges against Jesus. And they decided then to turn Jesus over to the Romans, hoping for the death penalty. So Jesus was taken to Pilate, the Roman governor. Because Pilate couldn't find anything against Jesus, he decided to send Jesus off to Herod, who was supposed to be the king of the Jews, who was also in charge of the area of Galilee because Jesus was a Galilean. Herod couldn't find any charges against Jesus, and so he sent Jesus back to Pilate. Pilate had Jesus scourged in an attempt to appease the religious leaders of Israel to no avail. Jesus' back would have been torn open. You remember that? With a, with a scourge, uh, leather straps with bones and pieces of uh, uh, sharp metal designed as a weapon to harm and to tear. Uh, it had been a terribly long and painful night for Jesus. Pilate then submitted to the Jews who yelled, Crucify, crucify him. That brings us to John 19, verse 17. And so the cross is verses 17 through 27. Now we're at the location, verse 17. And look at verse 17. Here's what the scriptures say. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which is called Golgotha in Aramaic, called Golgotha. It was common for a convicted criminal to carry his own cross. This was for public humiliation. Uh, In Jesus' case, it's probably a crossbar that he's carrying. One of the reasons it's not absolutely easy to make authoritative statements about every historical detail of something like the crucifixion is because, for example, uh, the Romans practice crucifixion with three different types of crosses historically. We think we know which one was used for Jesus. But there was uh, a cross that was shaped like an X. Think about that. So the body was, shaped, was put out like this, like an X. Then there was a cross that was like a capital T. Maybe you've seen those in the movies. And then there is a cross like a small T, the traditional cross. And that was most likely the one uh, that was used for Jesus and he was carrying a very heavy timber, a cross bar. And keep in mind the evening that Jesus has already experienced. He's been up all night 
tremendous loss of blood. And uh, he's been whipped and beaten, and he's being uh, forced to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem. It was a significant walk to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called uh, Golgotha. Um, In Luke 23, verse 26, John doesn't tell us this, but Luke adds, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. So uh, John doesn't mention it, and and don't worry, because remember uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have different purposes. John is writing 30-some years later. He already knows, everybody knows Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he's writing details that weren't always included. And he's telling the story, and uh, the way we know that what happened is we put them all together. And uh, we know that it's interesting, John mentions Simon from Cyrene some 30 years, or uh, he's writing 60 years later. John's writing 60 years after this event. Because, why did he mention Simon of Cyrene? Because people knew who Simon of Cyrene was. Simon probably wasn't a follower of Christ here, but he must have become one who was known later, probably follower of Christ later. Scripture isn't clear about that. So um, Simon helps to carry the cross, and Jesus would walk in uh, front. Uh, We've got a quick picture of the possibility of Golgotha, the place of the skull. There's a couple of, uh, that's a Muslim cemetery on the top. And if you can see kind of uh, toward the middle there, there are two, if you can imagine the two right eyes, the possibility of a nose, and below that the possibility of mouth. This is very likely the place that Jesus was crucified on that hill. Um, There are a couple of places. One of the reasons it's hard, you have to remember this. In 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman military. And so to go back and say, well, this was this place, and this was, the city wasn't that identifiable in the 70s after the Romans went through it. And, um, and so this is, conservative scholars believe this is the most likely place that Jesus was crucified. And you can see why it might pick up a name like Golgotha. Also, Golgotha means Calvary. Sometimes churches have picked up the name Calvary, use that in their name. It means Golgotha, place of the skull. Uh, 18, we get to the execution. There, this is all John says, there they crucified him with, and with him two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. So we got the picture, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. Uh, none of the gospel writers go into detail about the crucifixion. It happened. Um, John mentions that Jesus was crucified with two others. He does not mention their own, the conversation that's recorded in Luke. Luke talked with both of the thieves on the cross, and he invited one to join him in paradise later that day. Um, cruci- crucifixion was a most cruel and agonizing method for execution. After arriving at the place of execution, uh, Jesus would have been uh, stripped entirely of all clothing, not according to the pictures. His hands, and nail, his hands would be nailed to the crossbar. His feet were likely nailed to the vertical bar. Probably one nail through both of them. And uh, probably his legs were bent down. And that was part of the uh, whole plan of the execution. 
His chest cavity would have been strained by the, his outstretched arms um, when they were nailed to the crossbar in his attempt to breathe. That was part of the, the plan of execution. It would make it very hard to breathe. The vertical stake of the cross had a wooden peg uh, in the middle, and it was used for a seat, uh, not a comfortable seat. And the idea was the way he could breathe, what he would push himself, his legs were bent, he had to push himself up to be able to take a breath. And then he would be exhausted, and he could come back down to the seat, the peg. To breathe again, he had to come back up. Um, 36 hours was kind of common. Some people could live for days. And it was, it was uh, horrible conditions. Sun all day long. And sometimes the temperature would drop down to 40 degrees at night. And some people could live uh, in this agony. Um, to hurry the process of death, sometimes a heavy uh, club was used to crush their legs. And you can imagine if... Uh, the way to survive is to raise yourself up and breathe. Once your legs crushed, you don't raise yourself up again. And that was to hurry the death so that the victim would suffocate. In verses 19 through 20, we see a sign placed at the cross. Look at verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. When you think about that, it's really a pretty cool statement. That's probably not your first response, though. Um, It was common. It was normal that um, when a criminal was um, sentenced to death, that oftentimes they had to carry the sign with them or it was placed at the cross and it was placed at the top vertical beam above their head. And this would have stated, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Verse Uh, 20, many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And this is Jerusalem. They don't want a sign saying Jesus was the king of the Jews uh, at Jerusalem. And the sign was written in Aramaic because that was the spoken language of Jerusalem in in that day of the Hebrews. Uh, It was spoken in, uh, uh, it was written in Latin because that's the Roman language of law of the Roman Empire, and it was written in Greek, the lingua franca, the commercial language, the language that was dealt with in commerce all through the Roman Empire. And the, way, the whole point was this was public, and, and it is to be read. Verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. That was a problem for them, that Pilate would write. Remember how the, that back and forth with Pilate and the Jewish leaders. They wanted to crucify. Pilate could find no false. He was trying to get, to, get Jesus off the hook. And uh, he thinks that by scourging Jesus, you know, they're going to feel sorry, they're going to let him go, and it didn't work. Finally, he has to submit to, to have them crucified. Now, Pilate is going to try to have a final word here. Verse 22, Pilate answered, What I've written, I have written. And Pilate gets to win one. He gets what he wants. It's like making fun of the Jewish people uh, for once. And uh, it is written and stated publicly in Jerusalem. 
But what really happened? Jesus is crucified just outside the walls in Jerusalem as Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's Messiah. He's crucified as Messiah, King of the Jews. Who had his way? God had his way. That's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross as the Messiah of Israel. And if you remember uh, Revelation 19, verse 16, when Jesus comes, there's going to be a sign that says, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. He is the King. In verses 23 and 24, we see a prophecy. Uh, Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Four shares, four Roman soldiers. Four soldiers were common for a crucifixion. There could have been more, but there was at least four. It would have been a centurion, and then there would have been four legionnaires. These were experts. They were executioners. This was a part of their job. One writer states that there were at least 28 prophecies fulfilled while Jesus was on the cross. 28, just while he's nailed to the cross. Um, Verse 24, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. So there, there are four soldiers. They get four pieces of clothing, and there's one extra. So who gets it? Four pieces of clothing. There would have been something, a head covering. Jesus would have had some kind. There would have been a sash or some kind of belt or some kind of girdle kind of to hold everything together. Uh, there were sandals. There was an outer garment, and they were all divided up. But the undergarment was more valuable. It was seamless. And, um, you know, it may sound kind of quirky. Why do they want somebody's clothes after he's been beaten up? Well, these were valuable. They could be washed. These were valuable. Clothing was handmade. You didn't go to the store. They didn't throw clothing away. This was valuable stuff. They could sell it. It was cash. And so uh, they said, let's not tear it. Let's decide by lot who will get it. They, they, this happened so the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Casting lots was like throwing the dice. That's what we would say, throwing the dice. And um, whoever wins gets this most valuable piece, this, the seamless garment. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my clothes among themselves and cast lots for my garment. Psalm 22, uh, the whole psalm is a prophecy of Jesus while he's on the cross. That's what we're going to look at next week. So we're going to look at the whole passage. It's sort of like the inner world of Jesus while he is on the cross written over 900 years before his birth. Um, Verses 25 through 27, Jesus takes care of his mother. Verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women, three Marys. They are Christ followers, probably been with him from the early days. Some of them have sons that are disciples. Some of them have relatives who are disciples. Uh, Jesus' mother's name was Mary. And by the way, Mary was just a godly woman. 
She wasn't like anything other than a godly woman. Um, It was Mary's sister, his mother's sister, and her name would have been Salome. And then that's Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now Jesus speaks to his mother Mary, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Uh, Jesus is dying, and his mother, you know, what would you think it would be like to be his mother standing at the cross, raising this kid that was very unique, and watching his ministry, and then coming to this day. Somehow knowing he's special, unique, that he's the son of the Most High God, but he's nailed to the cross. She probably didn't see that coming. But as he is dying, he cares for her. Uh, He addresses the disciple whom whom he loved. Who would that be? Well, that would be John. That would be the disciple in the whole book of John that never mentions his name. It's sort of like an understating the whole thing because everybody knew who was writing this gospel. But he wouldn't say, I, John. He could have. Everybody knew who this was. John and his family most likely have a home in Jerusalem. Remember, John is the one who gets them into um, the, the home, the courtyard of the high priest. He had connections, his family's business family in Jerusalem. And uh, he, he, his business is up north in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. But he's a connected person. So what Jesus is asking is, John, would you take my mother, would you take responsibility for her after this day? Where are her sons and her daughters? They are not there. They are not yet followers of Christ. And Jesus is asking John, where are the other disciples? They are not there. It is John who is there. And he asked John to take his mother. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen to her that night? Well, she's going to be at John's house. I don't imagine anybody's got any big plans on what they're going to do after this event. Nobody's thought about it. This is like the crisis of all crisis. So um, we come now to the death in verses 28 through 37. First, uh, we see his submission in verses 28 through 30. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished. In the Gospel of John, you see this over and over again. Jesus has this sense of timing. Early, he says, the hour has not yet come, knowing that it's not time for him to go public. They're trying to move him too quickly uh, into doing miracles. He's not ready. He has this sense all through the Gospel of John. We get to John chapter 12 and John chapter 13. John says, Jesus knowing that the hour had come. This was his last night. And Jesus has a sense even right now. Later knowing that everything had now been finished. Um, And so the scripture would be filled, Jesus said, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Obviously, crucifixion caused uh, a terrible thirst for a victim of crucifixion. He had already lost a lot of blood. Um, his body would have been in shock. He is dreadfully thirsty. Loss of bodily fluids. He's been hours in the sun. Verse 29, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Uh, this drink was a, uh, this wine vinegar was a poor man's wine. 
the kind that Roman soldiers might drink because that's what they could afford. And um, Jesus wants something to say his final words. Imagine it was his, lip, his mouth is probably very dry. There's probably other stuff that's... And the wine vinegar is going to make it possible for him to speak. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. What was finished? The work that the Father had given Jesus to do was finished. The reason he came was finished. He came to show us the Father, to show us what God is like. He came to teach us. He he came to demonstrate the power of God, to point people back to God. And ultimately, he came to die for our sin penalty. He came to die for you, and he came to die for me. His work is finished. Now, just think about the implications of that for a minute. Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every person ever born falls short of God's standards. Every person. Every person the Bible would describe as a sinner in attitude or action. Nobody is perfect. Jesus was perfect. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, Romans 6, 23. Uh, those are consequences. We, we get uh, what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, eternal death. Jesus came to take our death penalty. I deserve the death. He took death for me. Um, One of my favorite passages, one of the many, is 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous he's the righteous i'm the unrighteous to bring you to god that's why he died the work he did the work he came to do it is finished to bring you to god he was put to death in the body crucifixion made alive by the spirit resurrection easter sunday morning John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It was because of love. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Christian life is not about working your way to heaven. The work was already done. It is already finished. That's the main message of the Bible. People get so confused. Throw in a little religion and people get mixed up. And it's what does the scripture say? The work has been done. Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for all sin. Uh, God has uh, one responsibility for us to respond back, and that's to believe in Jesus, what he's done, who he is, and what he's done for us. That was his primary work that he completed. Luke 23, 46, Luke records Jesus' very last words. John does not record these. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Jesus commended his spirit back to the Father. He gave up his life. Please understand, 
Nobody took Jesus' life. He gave it. He gave it freely. Jesus voluntarily submitted to the Father's will. Nobody overpowered him in the garden. At any time, he could have walked away. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, one of those well-known passages, describes this whole life of Jesus in this way. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So that's a takeaway here. We are to have a humble attitude like Jesus did. And then, and then uh, Paul the Apostle describes Jesus. He says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own adva- advantage. Jesus wouldn't hang on to his high position in heaven as God. He was willing to humble himself and come to this earth. Next slide. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human life, uh, human likeness. He became human, fully God, yet fully human. He took on human flesh. God entered the human race. God entered human history for about 33 years in the Son, Jesus Christ. We call it the Incarnation. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Nobody took his life. He gave his life by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And the exclamation point from the translator is because how cruel of death, how humiliating of death that he would give himself in that way. Next, we are reminded of just how religious the Jewish leaders were. Religious necessity, verses 31 through 34. Look at verse 31. Now, it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies to be taken down because they got to keep the Sabbath. I mean, this is important, right? And so uh, the day of preparation is the day of preparation for the Passover. Passover would start at sundown. This whole thing has to be cleaned up by sundown because the Jews have to celebrate the Passover. So what's going to happen is now is the Jewish leaders go to uh, Pilate. They want a favor. We want these bodies down. This is Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, so go break the legs of, of these three guys. Or let's, get them, let's get them killed. Let's get their bodies out of there. Bodies got to be removed by sundown. So, okay. Pilate sends out the soldiers, and they whack the legs. The first two guys, legs are broken. They come to Jesus. Um, Verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and those of the other. The soldiers do the job. One huge blow, their legs are crushed. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Um, he'd already died. So on the cross, he eats supper on Thursday night. He goes through this big ordeal. He's arrested in the middle of the night in the garden. He goes to six different appearances, hearings, interviews, interrogations. By 9 a.m., he's on the cross, and by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he's dead. Verse 34, Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. To verify their findings... These executioners who understand death, they can identify it. It's not the first time they've seen death. They can make a pretty good hunch, pretty good guess. Is this guy dead or alive? And so just to verify it, they do what they they do. They just 
with a spear, just stuck him in the stomach. And um, out comes blood and water. Verification. He's dead. Uh, you know, is he going to move? Is he going to groan? What's he going to do? And out comes the blood and water. Already separated. Uh, kind of a sign of, of death. Um, verse 35, we see the eyewitness. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. Who is the eyewitness? It's John. He won't, doesn't say his name. He's the one over and over in the book. When you see the disciples, his name does not come up. Prophecy in verse 36 and 37, these things happen so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another Scripture says, uh, they will look on the one they have pierced. Two prophecies. One is about bones. One is about the piercing of his side. Um, the first one is fulfillment of Psalm 3420. Uh, he, the, he, God, protects all his bones, the Messiah. Not one of them will be broken. And, of course, this is an allusion back to the Passover lamb. Uh, Exodus 12 is one of those passages where the Passover lamb was instituted and they were supposed to eat this on the night that uh, they were to leave Egypt, the people of Israel. This is where it was instituted. And uh, remember the Passover lamb, the blood was to be to spread on the doorpost of every house. So that night when the angel of death came over, if there was blood on the doorpost from the Passover lamb, God passed over and there was no judgment on that house. When John the Baptist appeared on the scene at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, referring to Jesus as the Passover Lamb. Now, Jesus is dead. And he has been the Passover Lamb. And his blood has been shed as a covering for the sin penalty of the world. So that God, when he passes over people who have placed their faith in Christ, he passes over them and does not bring judgment on them because they're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. None of his bones were broken because he was the Passover lamb. Zechariah 12.10 is the other passage. And this is a future prophecy. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me. This is God speaking. The one they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. This should have got their attention in the first century, but this refers to his coming again a second time. There's going to be a time coming when he's revealed from heaven. They're going to see the one that they've pierced and they're going to mourn. Now we come to the burial, finally, in verses 38 through 42. And we're introduced to uh, secret disciple number one. Look at verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. By the way, how big a deal is this? Who's Joseph? Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is a member of the ruling council of Israel. We know that from other passages. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He was there when Jesus was sentenced to death, but he didn't vote for it. This is the first time we have a clue about Joseph and what's gone on in his life. It's easy to overlook this. Jo Joseph is an older man, much like myself. 
And uh, he has a very prestigious position in the nation, a member of the ruling council. He is, you know, a Jewish man, a Jewish religious leader. It'd be like being involved in, uh, uh, for us, it'd be like being on the Supreme Court, a member of the Senate, and add two or three other titles. And um, so Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. Somewhere along the line, he became a follower of Christ, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And some people want to say, well, he was kind of a sissy here, wasn't he? Feared the Jewish leaders. That's what normal people do, because he could have been put to death for showing any interest. He would have lost his entire career because of this. Um, Where were the disciples? They ran. They're not here. It's Joseph of Arimathea that comes for the body. This is a great act of courage. He goes to Pilate. He doesn't know what Pilate's going to do. He doesn't know what's going to happen if the religious leaders find out. And so Pilate's a little sympathetic. With Pilate's permission, he came and took away the body. Secret disciple number two, verse 39. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had early visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Who's Nicodemus? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's one of the religious leaders. He came to Jesus in John chapter 3 at night. He came because he was searching for truth. He didn't come at day because he wasn't sure about Jesus yet. He didn't want everybody to see him talking to Jesus. He came to Jesus at night. He too was present when Jesus um, was sentenced to death that Friday morning. But he has searched the scriptures. And he has understood who the Messiah is. And so now these two older men, who are very prestigious, come to take the body. There are no disciples there to help. Two men risk their entire careers. Jesus is dead. They don't know where this is going. Jesus is dead. And they take the body. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They first would have had to wash the body. And then, uh, look at verse 40, the preparation. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. They would have washed the body, these two men, which would have made them ceremonially unclean to celebrate the Passover that night. And they do this quickly because they want to get him in the tomb and the stone rolled over by sundown. So they would have washed the body. They would have uh, wrapped his body and created some kind of paste with this myrrh and aloes designed as the body dried and decayed. The, the scent of the myrrh would come out and, and it would be sort of a cover-up for the decaying process. And uh, they are seeking to honor Jesus in his death, uh, caring for him at this time when everybody has left him. Verse 41 and 42, we see the new tomb. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden in the garden, a new tomb, and it just happened to be owned by Joseph of Arimathea, in which no one had ever been laid. It was common for a tomb. A tomb was uh, usually carved out of rock, especially by a family like Joseph of Arimathea. And a large, he had a, you know, they would have had a tomb for many people in the family. 
And what they did was, when somebody died, they put them in the tomb. They rolled it over, and so it was sealed, and the body would lay in there for a long period of time and decay, and then it would become a skeleton, and then they would put the skeleton in a smaller container and put it off into a side or put it into a small area in the tomb. And then it would just be more room for the next family member who needed to be there. But no one had ever been placed in this tomb. And um, verse 42, because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And they accomplished this by sundown. Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60, tell us that as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Next slide. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb. Belonged to Joseph. It had been cut out of the rock, hand, hand, hand cut, handmade. He rolled a big stone, big circular stone, uh, flat. And the idea was so it could be rolled in front of the tomb and then sealed. And then he left. And we now wait for the resurrection. 800 years earlier, before the birth of Christ, Isaiah 53, verse 9, recorded this. He, he's referring to the Messiah, was assigned a grave with the wicked. What does that mean? Well... He was crucified between two criminals. The way they handled that is they took the bodies of the criminals and they threw them in a common grave. They just threw them. No big deal. Get them out of sight. He was assigned. This, is what, this would have been the normal assignment with the grave of the wicked. If nobody came for Jesus, this is what he gets. And with a rich man in his death. 800 years before, nobody saw it coming, but Joseph of Arimathea would go to Pilate for the body at great risk in the sovereignty of God Think of the courage, Joseph of Arimathea stepping up. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Here's an application for us. God's will is sometimes accomplished in horrible circumstances. Isn't that true? God's will is sometimes accomplished through horrible circumstances. Jesus endured horrible circumstances. He was accused falsely. He was arrested without cause. He was interrogated and abused all night. He was scourged with a leather whip filled with sharp metal and bone fragments. He was mocked and dressed as a king. He was forced to walk through the streets of Jerusalem carrying his own cross. His hands and his feet were nailed to the cross. His nakedness was totally exposed to the public. Ultimately, he would die. Yet God was at work in every circumstance to fulfill at least 28 prophecies while he was being crucified. God was working to bring salvation to the entire world. Only Jesus understood at that time. Think about that. Other people didn't know what God was up to. They didn't have a clue what was coming down. Even though Jesus had made predictions, they still didn't get it. I wouldn't have gotten it either. I wouldn't have understood And the world would not understand what was happening in all these circumstances. In her book called The Hiding Place, Corrie Ten Boom tells about life in a German concentration camp during World War II in Ravensbrück, Germany. It was a camp only for women. Over 120,000 women went through the camp from 1939 to 1945. 
most of the women did not live. Corey and her family were arrested in the Netherlands for uh, harboring uh, Jewish people seeking to escape the Nazis who were rounding them up and shipping them off to camps. The camp conditions of Ravensbrück were horrible, hideous, and very degrading to at least 10,000 women there at one time. Corey recounts an incident in her book where a group of hungry uh, women were were gathered around and Corey's sister, Betsy, was leading a Bible study. And a woman from a bunk nearby leans over and she began to mock the women studying the Bible. And she angrily says this, if your God is so good, why does he allow this kind of suffering? That's really a good question. And then she tears off the rags she uses for bandages to display her broken and mangled hands. And she goes on to say, I am the first violinist. And she mentions the name of her cities, Symphony Orchestra. Did your God will this, that, that her hands be mangled? Nobody says a thing. I don't know what I would have said either. Then Corey stepped out. She says, we can't answer your question. All we know is that our God has come to this earth and he, he became uh, one of us. And he has suffered with us and he was crucified and died and he did it for love. That was Corey's answer. He became one of us. He suffered with us. He died and he did it for love. If you know the story, Corey Tenboom suffered greatly at Ravensbrook in horrible circumstances. Corey's sister Betsy died in the camp. Later, uh, Corey told her story uh, to thousands and thousands of people. And she wrote several books, and she was invited to speak in many places, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ because of the message she spoke about her God who did it for love. Jesus said in this world that you and I would have trouble. And somehow we think we're not supposed to. You and I will have trouble. Sometimes we have more than others. Sometimes life seems to go pretty well. But you and I should expect there's going to be a time when we have trouble. Sometimes our circumstances are difficult. Sometimes our job can be really hard and we'd like to leave it, find a new one. Sometimes we feel lonely or unloved. Uh, Sometimes our health is uncertain. Sometimes we suffer greatly. Sometimes we suffer physically and emotionally and we may be totally drained. Sometimes we feel like there's no hope. Uh, Maybe somebody uh, betrays us or disrespects us. And I just want to remind us, you know, God's will can be accomplished through any circumstance, no matter how difficult. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe that? God's will can always be accomplished. And he wants us just to lean into him. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to walk closely with him. Um, We often have a choice. You know, we have a choice. Hard times may come, and they're going to come whether you walk with Jesus or not. Sometimes we think, if I walk with Jesus, I'm going to get into more difficulty. It's not true. I just want God to use my difficulty when I have to go through it. And he uh, just wants us to hang in there day after day after day. Let's stand for prayer.
Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 22. I would encourage you to read through that this week. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled by the story of Jesus and the horrible circumstances that he endured for us. And the only thing I can think of is to say is thank you, God. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that he took my place, that he took our place, that he paid our death penalty, and that now you've offered to us life, an abundant life, a life with hope, a life that can have joy, a life that um, can have love and that we can have love to give because you love through us, a life that we can practice patience and endurance and kindness and gentleness with your strength. God, I don't know uh, what circumstances people face today. Every one of us is in a unique situation. And yet you are the God of hope. And you um, sent your son because of love. May we respond to your gift. May we respond to your love. And may we seek to walk with you each day for Jesus' sake. Amen.